Father, we quiet our hearts before your word this morning. We pray for hearts of humility as we think about Saul. We pray for hearts that are focused on our own struggles, on our own sin, the areas of our heart that are in rebellion against you. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would, as we get a glimpse of our own sin, we pray for reminders of your steadfast love and faithfulness. We pray for reminders of your abundant love, your loving kindness, your slowness to anger, your willingness to turn. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would lift up Christ for us this morning, all that you, Father, Son, and Spirit have accomplished in order to see your people gathered from every tribe and tongue. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This is a sign that greets you if you're walking along the Billy Goat A Trail. Along that trail, you'll see a sign. You're going to see it in a few minutes. There it is. You see this sign, and the sign is meant to warn you. You've gotten to a place in the trail that you may not want to continue on. The path ahead of this sign is difficult and dangerous, and it's at that next section of the trail that hikers are injured year after year. Now, the sign is a forcing function for everyone who walks along the Billy Goat A trail. There's a decision point that needs to be made. Do you press ahead or do you turn around? I saw this sign for the first time several years ago. I was hiking with our four kids on my own. Nicole was prepping for school. And I had never been on this particular section of the Billy Goat A Trail, so I didn't know what to expect. I was outnumbered four to one, and it was raining. Three variables that made the decision about whether or not to heed the warning more complicated in my own brain. Chapters 18 and 19 of 1 Samuel serve as a warning sign to us. They challenge us to careful consideration. King Saul has been rejected by God as king of Israel because he's rejected God's word. He's abandoned God's heart. He's turned away from God's ways. And because of that, God takes away Samuel's prophetic voice for Saul. And then finally, he takes away his own spirit from Saul's heart. And at the same time as this is happening to Saul, God sends Samuel to anoint David quietly as the new king of Israel. Now, David is not going to take the throne for quite some time, but Saul knows right away that something's different, that at the same time God has departed from Saul, God is in an extraordinary way rushing upon David. But instead of humbling himself, instead of seeing the warning signs, Saul doubles down on his own rebellion and resistance to God's path, to God's plans. He opposes God's leadership. He rejects the hand of the Lord in his life. And what we find in these two chapters isn't pretty. Here's what it looks like when you resist the plans of the Lord in your life. Next week, we'll see Jonathan's polar opposite response to the exact same circumstances. Jonathan stands to lose all the same things as Saul, but he responds with submission to God's difficult leadership. And that means that that Jonathan is able to adapt 
and play the role that God has called him to with joy. But this week will be dark. This week will be played in a minor key because we need to think about how we respond when God's plans in our life are difficult and confusing and painful. When God doesn't provide the good thing that we've longingly prayed for, God, would you just bring this good thing? And he doesn't bring it. Or when God won't remove the thing that's inflicting desperate pain in your heart, how do you respond when God's leadership in your life is difficult? Saul opposes and he resists the plans of the Lord and it spirals him downward. And so our main idea is simple this morning. Don't resist the plans of the Lord. You might be in a moment this morning of determined rebellion. You're relishing your sin in the shadows. You know you're rebelling against God. It's clear to you, but you find it hard to care anymore. Or you might be in a moment of painful guilt. You feel the shame of standing against God's ways, but you don't have the courage to bring it into the light. You don't have the determination to bring it. Or you might be watching someone else around you spiraling downward, resisting the plans of the Lord. They know the right thing to do, but they resist his plans. And you're watching helplessly as they're running headlong toward the edge of the cliff. Or you might not be a follower of Jesus at all this morning. And you're living your life without any acknowledgement that he made you and he loves you and he has plans for your life. Whatever the situation is in your heart this morning, the warning that is 1 Samuel 18 and 19 should turn us from our resistance to God's plans and to embrace his good and loving and wise leadership. So let's begin and set down some context in chapter 18, verses 1 through 9. The first five verses are all teed up by David's smashing defeat of Goliath. The first thing we see in these verses is that Jonathan's heart is immediately knit to David. It's miraculous, it's immediate, and they love each other. Saul, too, loves David and pulls him into his household, pulls him into the royal household, pulls him permanently into his own orbit. And in an amazingly humble moment, Jonathan makes a covenant with David. Almost every commentator agrees that when Jonathan gives David his robe and his weapons, he is acknowledging as the heir apparent that God is with David. And this becomes explicit in chapter 20 next week. Saul relies upon David. We see this in the first five verses. He sends David out to fight Israel's battles, and David has wonderful success to the point that all Israel loves David and respects him, and everyone in Saul's inner orbit loves David and respects him. Things are going well until dangerous seeds are planted in Saul's heart in verse 6 of 1 Samuel 18. As they were coming home, coming home from battle, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. Now, it can be hard enough to process the difficult plans of the Lord in our life. 
It becomes even harder when the thing you prayed for, someone else receives. It's understandable that we're disappointed sometimes with the way that God leads in our lives. And that understandable disappointment can sometimes lead us to turn and notice the people around us. And this is at the heart of what Saul's struggling with. It's not so much that God has abandoned him as it is that God is with David. As a dad, I don't always give my kids the same things. I may let one child ride his bike around the block because they can handle the responsibility safely. Or I may not let one kid watch a particular movie because I know that that thing will scare them. Or I may let this child endure a hard relational moment even though I might want to take them out of it because I know that it will strengthen their character in the end. And if I, as a human sinful father, know how to give good gifts to my children, how much more will a righteous heavenly father know how to good gives, good give, good give good gifts to us? We must persuade ourselves that God doesn't give us stones when we ask for bread. If he hasn't answered it, then in some mysterious way that we cannot see yet, it is good, even though it is hard. He is a tender father who gave up Jesus to see us reconciled. And if he gave up that thing that was most precious to him, what good thing will he keep from us? But Saul's jealousy gives way to paranoid, unstable, murderous hatred. And I've divided the rest of these two chapters into seven murder attempts. First, verses 10 through 16 of chapter 18. Read with me in verse 10. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. And we saw this harmful spirit from the Lord two weeks ago when Matt preached to us the end of chapter 17. And it's staggering to read, but remember God's permission to Satan in the life of Job. God actually provokes Satan to disrupt Job's life. He says to Satan when Satan comes before him, have you noticed my servant Job? God was the first actor there, and God was in complete control. God told Satan how far he could press Job and when he needed to stop. And I think this is what we're seeing in Saul's life. Picture Saul sitting on the throne, hunched over, leaning on his chin with a spear in his other hand. And this volcanic eruption boils out of his heart. And he throws a spear across the room at David. Saul is a warrior. Saul knows how to throw a spear at a man across the room. But Saul misses. And then Saul grabs a second spear or grabs that first spear and throws it again, and he misses. Saul understands what's happening here. Saul should be able to connect with David, and he doesn't. And David, on his own part, is showing tremendous restraint. He knows he's the next king. He sees what's happening. And that second throw, all he does is play defense. Saul's response is fear because this is evidence that God is with David and God has abandoned me. Saul has lost favor with God 
But instead of turning, he doubles down and he continues to rebel against God's authority. He abandons God's ways and he gives evidence of the fact that, he, that God has removed his spirit from him. In verses 13 through 16, Saul promotes David in the army. He gets David out of his presence. The problem is David experiences even more success and even more praise from the people. So that all the people of Judah and Israel loved David. David had success wherever he went for the Lord was with him. So it's not just Saul's, or David's military success that has Saul angry. It's the fact that God is with David and bringing him this success. Second murder attempt, chapter 18, verses 17 through 19. Then Saul said to David, here is my elder daughter Mereb. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against David, but let the hand of the Philistines be against David. Is a chilling foreshadowing of David's biggest mistake. Let me kill David, not by my own hand, but by the hand of the Philistines. The problem is David feels too humble to be the king's son-in-law. And so he, he presses away the offer. And Merib is given to another man to be his wife. And then murder attempt number three in chapter 18, verses 20 through 30. Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give Michael to David that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. But David pushes him off again. No, I'm not worthy to be the king's son-in-law. And so Saul goes to his servants and says, go to David and broker a deal. All I want are the lives of a hundred Philistines. That's all the bride price I expect from David. And so David goes out. Look at verse 25. Then Saul said to David, thus you shall say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hands of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David... And that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. Saul was even more, even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Not only does David, is David not killed by trying to get the bride price for Saul, he comes back unscathed and doubles the bride price. In verse 30, David enjoys more battle success than any of Saul's servants. And his name is highly esteemed in all the land. Saul's now failed three times to take David's life. And in fact, it's only increased David's favor among the people. Saul shamelessly uses his daughter as a ploy. He sees red. He opposes God's law. 
When we zoom in and focus on a particular lack of provision, something we've longed for God to provide and He doesn't, when we zoom in on that and and only focus on that, we lose focus on the people around us. We take our eyes off of ministry. We take our eyes off of selfless service. And all we can think about and all that consumes us is this thing that we do not have or this thing that we have that we do not want. Saul ends up using the people he loves as pawns to get what he wants. Murder attempt four, chapter 19, verses one through seven. Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. Saul is now openly conspiring with others to kill David. But Jonathan is unmoved. Jonathan is the crown prince. He's the heir apparent, but he alerts David, and then he confronts his father Saul. Look at verse 4. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for Israel. You saw it, and you rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? Jonathan speaks to his powerful father and confronts him with the truth. David, not only has he done nothing wrong, he's only done good for you. Why are you ready and plotting and scheming to shed innocent blood? Well, Saul does what we're hoping he'll do at least briefly, in verses 6 and 7. He listens to the counsel of his son. He swears by God that he will not take David's life. And then Jonathan brings David back in to Saul's presence. And in Jonathan, we see an example of the courage that we must display when a person around us spirals. Saul is descending dangerously. He's resistant to God's call in his life. And Jonathan speaks the truth to his father and calls him to account. He loves Saul enough to intervene. He's courteous, he's clear, he's courageous. And he points Saul to the truth. Your emotions are out of alignment with reality. You've given into your emotions in this situation and it has clouded your judgment. Murder attempt number five, verses eight through 17. David returns after winning another battle. He's back in Saul's court again, playing the liar. And we're in Saul's throne room. And Saul sits on his throne with a spear in his hand and the harmful spirit returns. Saul must be brooding over David's victory. David secures victories because the Lord is with him. God has abandoned me, but he's given overwhelming success to David. All of Israel rushes to praise David. No one says anything about all the sacrifices I've made for Israel. No one mentions all the sacrifices, all the leadership, all the victories that we've won because of my leadership. 
It's cost me so much to serve God. What ungrateful people that I serve. And then David dares to sit in my throne room playing his lyre. The inner dialogue that we can imagine in Saul's heart is an inner dialogue that I know you and I struggle with. And at some point, Saul erupts and hurls the spear towards David. And David dodges the spear again and he escapes the throne room while the spear wobbles in the wall behind him. But Saul's intent on finishing it this time. Verse 11, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told David, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through the window and he fled away and he escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair as its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. And Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Now Saul's attempt fails for the fifth time, and this time it fails with the help of his own daughter who breaks with Saul to defend her husband. Saul experiences here what we can all relate to, especially those of us here who are Christians. We know that our sin is an offense to God, hurtful to others, and deadly dangerous to ourselves. But then our sinful passions can rise sometimes to such heights that it feels like we can barely stand against it. An overwhelming magnetic pull to turn away from God. And so in the span of one breath, we can stand against our sin and then foolishly embrace our sin. Acting completely irrational, seeming completely irrational to the people around us. Only the powerful work of gospel grace, planned by the Father, won by the Son, applied by the Spirit, can help us stand in moments like this. And we need the grace of a church family who understands the irrationality, who understands because we are recipients of God's grace, we understand how foolish we can be as His people. To on the one hand stand against sin and on the other hand embrace it. We can relate to Saul. We can understand King Saul. There's another murder attempt. The last one we'll look at this morning. It's in verse 18 through 24 of chapter 19. David escapes from home successfully, but where do you go to hide from the king of Israel? Where are you supposed to go to hide? Look at verse 18. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah, And told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told to Saul, behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. David runs to find Samuel. Samuel, of all people, will be the one safe place 
for David to go. And they go and they stay in Samuel's compound where apparently he's gathered a group of prophets. And they're at this compound together in the area of Ramah. And what happens next is strange, so strange. Look at verse 20. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. They're not arresting David. They're certainly not killing David. They've been controlled by the Spirit of God and they begin to prophesy along with Samuel's prophets. Look at verse 21. When it was told to Saul, he sent other messengers and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time and they also prophesied. Saul sends three groups of soldiers and they are consumed and controlled by the Spirit of God. It is clear to anyone paying attention that the Spirit of God is operative in the life of this situation, that he is in control and that he is working to fulfill God's purposes. Now Saul's lost three groups of servants and so he determines to go himself in verse 22. Then Saul himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he said, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And he went and he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothing and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. And thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. And you read that the first time and it almost strikes a bizarrely humorous chord. What is happening here? But when we read it in the context of this tragically descending chapter, it becomes more chilling than humorous. We don't know exactly what the Spirit of God was directing King Saul or the others to say or to do. We do know that he's under the control of the Spirit. We do know that he strips himself of at least his kingly garments and he lays down in that manner all day and all night. He has stripped off at least all the outward signs that he is the King of Israel. Which of course reveals the inward reality that he is no longer the one that God has chosen. The king is being humiliated. The king is being humbled by the Spirit of God. God's awesome power is on display. Saul is left powerless by God's leadership. God has rejected Saul as king. God has removed the prophetic witness of Samuel. God has removed his spirit from Saul. But Saul continues to resist the plans of the Lord. There is no good ending when we resist the leadership of God in our lives. When we oppose his plans. This is a bleak end to a desperate, paranoid attempt to snuff out the plans of the Lord. All driven by Saul's correct assessment that the Lord was with David, but the Lord had left Saul. I didn't turn around soon enough on the billy goat trail. The rain made the boulders extra slippery. 
the boulders, if you've been on the trail, that you need to hop across. And I couldn't tell how much worse the trail would get because I hadn't been on this section of the trail before. And I didn't know how long it was going to keep raining and if it would rain harder or if it would let up. And I was outnumbered. And so we sat under a boulder to shelter ourselves from the rain. And I sat there taking a pole to see what we should do. <laughs> should we turn around or should we press ahead? Chapters 18 and 19 of 1 Samuel are a warning sign urging us, particularly those of us who belong to Christ, do not follow Saul's example. Do not oppose and resist the plans of the Lord. Next week, as I said, we'll see Jonathan respond very differently to the Lord's plans. But for now, we're left with this question. Will you resist the plans of the Lord? This morning is an opportunity for you to take shelter underneath that boulder in the rain and to consider, do I turn or do I press ahead? I don't think there's anyone in this room who's resisting the Lord's plans as egregiously as Saul, but I don't know. But I imagine there are corners of our hearts where we are resisting the Lord's leadership, where we're resisting His plans, where we're turning away from His ways, where we're abandoning His heart. And this morning is an opportunity for us underneath that boulder, sheltered from the rain, to make a decision. Will we turn back toward the Lord or will we persist in this direction? Warning signs are hammered into the ground all throughout God's Word. Alex Louisis, this week in the preaching meeting, mentioned Romans chapter 2. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourselves? You, man or woman, who judge those who are doing evil things while you do them yourself. Do you think, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience you who have tasted the kindness of the Lord, will you presume on his kindness while persisting in resisting God's will and God's ways? Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2 is explicit, where, Rome, where 1 Samuel 18 and 19 just provide us an example. This passage warns us to turn away from sinful rebellion wherever it may take up refuge in our hearts and to embrace God's plan for us. Judgment for our sin is inescapable apart from the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience. And how much worse for those of us who have tasted all these good things. We've tasted the mercy of God for us to peddle our sin in quiet and to resist the Lord. No, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Resisting God's ways and God's heart will lead to God's righteous discipline. The warning sign is a decision point. 
This morning is a decision point. Will I resist God's plans or will I turn back to him? Now, we ended up turning back on the trail that morning, but we returned to conquer it on another day. But there are plenty of times where I have not turned, where people have come to me and pled with me to turn, and I resisted the Lord's leadership. I resisted the Lord's ways. How do you respond when God's leadership in your life is confusing and difficult and painful? When he does not provide that thing that you desperately long for? When he won't remove the thing that's causing such desperate pain in your life? How do you respond to his difficult providence? Don't resist the plans of the Lord. Because whether or not you resist his plans, the purposes of the Lord will stand. Instead, turn to him in honest lament and express the disappointment and the legitimate sadness that his plans have introduced into your life. I know his leadership is not always easy. And instead of resisting the plans of the Lord, turn to him in honest repentance for all the ways that you've resisted his plans. And I promise you, when you stop and turn, you will find a God eager to show mercy. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts, not your garments. Don't just tear your garments. Don't just go through the external process. But tear your heart. Let your heart feel the brokenness and the foolishness of resisting God's ways and God's righteousness. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord your God who relents over disaster. Joel 2, 12. So let go of the demands in your heart and lean into the plans that he has for you and trust the goodness of his heart. Trust the goodness of his heart, especially when you cannot see by sight how this thing could be good. He will not give you a stone when you ask him for bread. He will not give you a scorpion when you plead for a fish. He is a good father who gives us exactly what we need. He will not mess with you. Your pain will not be wasted. And 10,000 years from now, as we think about his leadership, as we think about his plans, as we stand in his presence complete, we will praise him for the wisdom and the mercy and the love of his plans. Let's pray. Father, would you strengthen us this morning by your word? We do need these sober warning shots to not resist your leadership in our life, to not resist your plans, to not resist your ways, your righteousness, your heart. We don't want to be people who stand against you, who oppose you, who resist you. We want to be a people humbled, a people 
persuaded of your kindness and goodness, even in moments where your leadership is hard to understand. Teach us this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.